Gentlemen, good morning. Welcome. If I could call you to uh, your seats, if I could encourage you to come and fill up groups from the front. There's one there on my right, one here on my left, and then the middle row is generally, in tradition, the next row to be filled. So <laughs> make your way forward. We're going to make uh, a start in um, just a few seconds, it's looking like. Don't worry, if you don't know people in the groups, um, no one bites here. We're very friendly. It's about getting to know one another as brothers, journeying together. So do fill up the groups. We like to have a bit of discussion time later and pray for each other. So um, it's a great way of meeting, getting to know one another. But without further ado, let me welcome you um, to Burning Man. My name is Pat Allerton. Um, I'm part of the team that helps uh, run Burning Man, uh, hosted by St. Michael's Church. Thank you so much to Charles and the guys here for having us um, but in a nutshell, the vision of Burning Man came about because uh, two guys, myself and a friend, on a weekend away in the countryside, were, ch were chatting. And he was uh, sharing, well, we were both sharing, how embarrassed we were about uh, our general lack of Bible knowledge. His wife had joined a women's Bible study and was uh, exponentially outstripping his Bible knowledge, having only been a Christian a few years and he for 30-odd years. So there and then, we decided, well, why don't we start a men's Bible study group where we get guys together uh, to go into the scriptures in depth, to see it modeled by the best Bible teachers and speakers we can find. Um, so Burning Man was born, and uh, we went to the scriptures for inspiration. We found the Road to Emmaus story, which spoke of men leaving the city, Jerusalem, leaving downcast because they'd seen Jesus executed, d dead, buried, uh, post the cross. And they, they left downcast. And Jesus, we, we read, came and walked alongside them. And uh, the scriptures say how he opened the scriptures to them, explaining why the Christ had to suffer. And later when he broke bread and uh, they realized it was him, he disappeared from this, their sight. And they reflected to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? There is something so powerful when uh, the scriptures, the Bible is opened up in a living, active and effective way. And that became the inspiration for Burning Man, that we would be men who in this generation, in this city, perhaps turn around to recommit to that city, reaching it for the glory of Christ, because we understand the scriptures. That's the vision. So ever since then, two years ago, we've been uh, seeking to get the best Bible teachers we can. And um, I'm thrilled that this morning, at the beginning of a new season of Burning Man, we have Rico Tice with us this morning. Rico is the Senior Minister for Evangelism at All Souls Langham Place where he joined in the latter days of John Stott's ministry. Um, he's an extraordinary man, Rico. The few times I've heard him preach, not enough. He's uh, one of the most compelling Christian speakers I have heard, um, not only in the UK, but around the world. Um, his passion for the gospel overflows. In fact, I first heard him at Bible school at uh, Cornhill, Rico. You came in and you did a sermon. And the fact that I can still remember the sermon, I think, is a testament to how spot on and how the Holy Spirit was using it. But I remember looking up when he got us into groups buzzing. And I looked up and I saw Rico standing near the lectern and he was doing something like this. But to himself, he seemed to be talking to himself and I thought, what is going on there? But I quickly discerned that I think you were preaching to yourself. I don't know if you do that a lot, but he was stirring himself up. And I think he was rehearsing his lines because he is a man so gripped, so compelled by the gospel, overflowing at all moments, preaching to himself if no one else will hear. But I'm thrilled that we are here this morning to hear him, to learn from him. So, uh, Rico, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, would you please give a very warm welcome to Rico Tice? 
Uh, I did work with John Stott for 15 years. He got up at 10 to 5 each morning and slept for half an hour each afternoon. I myself adopted one of those two habits, so it's lovely to be with you <laughs> here today. Thank you very much. Uh, let's pray as we begin. Father God, we do pray, Lord, that there will be something from this session, Lord, that will profoundly affect us and profoundly affect others. Oh, Lord, please, we can look at the Bible. Lord, we uh, cry to you for your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts very deeply. Give us soft hearts and cleanse us afresh from our sin, Lord. We're sinful men. Please forgive us and cleanse us afresh. And uh, Lord, please feed us that we may in turn be a blessing to others. Amen. A young police officer was taking his final exams at Hendon Police Training Centre in London, and one of the questions well as follow, read as follows. You're on patrol in the suburbs of London when an explosion occurs in a nearby street. On investigation, you find a large hole has been blown in a footpath by a gas pipe. There's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside, there's a strong smell of alcohol, and both occupants are injured. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance. You realize that he's a man who's wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, another man runs out of a nearby house, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. And then the exam continued, bearing in mind the provision of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. And the officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> and just to say, gents, as we come to today, and it comes to evangelism and reaching others for Christ, particularly in a culture that's hardening a little bit, uh, I just want to ask that qu this question this morning as we begin. What? about Jesus Christ. Just a couple of minutes in pairs next to each other. What is it that stops us doing this as individuals, as churches? What stops us doing evangelism? Over to you. Let's just have a couple of minutes. Okay, everyone. What have we got there? What stops us? Just good always to try and get a brief on this. What are the things that stop us doing this? Yep, concerned of causing offense. And just to say on that, we are going to cause offense. If we're doing the real gospel, it is offensive in this culture. We believe some outrageous things culturally. Brothers, let's just remember this. We believe Jesus is the only way to God. We believe there is a judgment to come and everyone will face that judgment. We believe in a place called hell where people go if they reject God. We believe outrageous things. We believe the only authority is scripture, that Jesus Christ is the one who walks off the pages of scripture and final authority in life belongs to him. We believe some outrageous things. It's going to cause terrible offense. We believe the only place for sex is within marriage between a man and a woman. Now, are you ready for the, are you, are you ready for the rejection we're going to get? I was doing a little... Uh, uh, I've, just, I've just written this little book here called Honest Evangelism because I'm sick of the dishonesty. I'm sick of the dishonesty on two levels. Number one, the dishonesty to Christians thinking that we can keep all our friends if we, if we say these things. And the dishonesty to non-Christians where actually we're withholding crucial bits of the culture because we know it'll cause offense. So we say enough to salve our conscience, but not enough to really inform them what the gospel is. And as I say this, you see, I'm, we talk about crossing the pain line. There's a nervousness as I say it. What we believe in this culture, brothers, is profoundly offensive. So we're going to cause offense. And therefore, secondly, we are going to be rejected. 
And it doesn't matter how charming you are, you're going to get marginalized and isolated for believing this. So Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 10, verse 17, I send you out as sheep among wolves. I've not seen what a sheep can do, uh, what, what, a, what a, 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 a wolf can do to a sheep. I've seen what a dog can do. And yet in our evangelism training, we're often lying to people. We're not telling them that. So that means that in my identity, I've got to make sure that I believe this. Whether you accept or reject me for telling you the gospel doesn't make me more valuable. What makes me valuable is that Christ died for me because we are going to get marginalized and rejected. Now, having said that, there's increased hostility in the culture, but there's also increased hunger. So when you cross the pain line and you say something to people, and I'm often finding I'm trying to say it with a question. So on my street, for each people, or for all the people on my street as I pray for them, I've got a question that I'm looking to ask them that's a different question. So that there are three gay couples on the street. Uh, my son Peter helps one of them water the plants. Uh, one guy watered the plants. The only question I've, we've got to know him for two years, the question I'm just going to ask him as we look at the flowers one day is, look, are you a theist or an atheist? Now, you may think, well, that's a very wet little question, but actually it's crossing a bit of a pain line as we just try and put that on the agenda with where people's identity is. What else stops us? Bro. Yeah, I think deception does do it. I, Bishop Frank Retief, this really struck me, he is a, 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 a bishop in South Africa in Cape Town. He makes his pastors, his clergy, organize their diaries around the following mission statement. People without Christ go to hell. He said, I want you to organize the church here and your personal diaries around this mission statement. People without Christ go to hell. Now, if I may say this, those of us who come from non-Christian homes get this better. If you have the wonderful privilege of a Christian home, you don't bury people that go to hell, and it's not quite the same. So John Stott said, we need more tears. We need more tears, and there is a deception. If there is a place called hell, and that's where we pay for sin, it means two things. Number one, we are unbelievably valuable to Jesus, that he should have died for us. Hell makes the cross so much more amazing, because ultimately the Christian faith is being saved from hell, through the cross, and for heaven. So that's the, that's the first issue. But, but secondly, the, the issue is that sin is so profoundly serious. It's so serious because God is holy. That is his character. What else have we got? What are the other things that stop us? There is a proud, profound deception. And I don't want to be rejected. You see, I hate rejection. What else have we got? What are the other reasons we don't speak? That is a great question. Brothers, let's just look at one verse on this that transformed my view of evangelism. Please turn to Acts 17. God's sovereign in our lives, says Rupert. Let's just have a look down. Acts 17, this verse was transformational for me. Page 1113, because it is early in the morning. So I'll give you a page number. Acts 17 and verse 26. Now hold on to your seats, because this is, this is staggering for evangelism. Acts 17, 26. So here is Paul in the Areopagus. He's preaching, and he says, verse 26, From one man, Adam, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. So, and then he writes, and he determined, now hold on to this, the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. This means that every colleague you have at work and every neighbor you've got the reason they're there is because God has determined they'd be there. They think they're there to earn a living in London, to work for BP. They're not. 
God has decided why they're there, and why has de decided what, why they're there. The person you sit next to on the tube, or opposite in a train, or by next to in a plane, or whatever. Why are they there? Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, God has sovereignly organized who is on my street, how long they live there for, who they work with. The same with the five-a-side soccer on a Saturday morning with the boys or the swimming. He decides who you're next to. He decides it. Because the big picture of history is that he's reaching out and getting a people for himself. That means in whatever situation I'm in, if I believe in God's sovereignty, I go, Lord, you've put this person here. So Lucy and I are just really excited. A Muslim couple have just moved in opposite us. They, I mean, they think they're, they're there to worship Allah. They're not. They're there to, they're there to hear of Jesus. Because he, now here's the verse, Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 17, he created all things and in him all things have their being. So he gives each breath, he sustains, he creates. And therefore, when I'm jumping off into evangelism, I'm thinking, Lord, you've put me here. I sit on the plane. So I was going over to, uh, to a, a, a conference in Florida and I sat next to, on a plane next to two girls who were going over to Disney World, two sisters. And uh, I, don't think I don't think they'd chatted to a Christian. I, but as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, Lord, you've put us next to each other. So it's just that initial trying to just create relationship, have a laugh with people who've not really chatted with Christians before. So here I am. accept or reject me, uh, uh, what makes me valuable is Christ died for me. It's not what your opinion of me, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm detached from that. It's the liberty of it. God has organized to put this work colleague next to me. What's the third thing I've got to have in place? Just the third thing, power. I've got to know where the power is. Could we turn to our bits of paper that I'm leaving you with here? Uh, 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 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Three things I need in place for my evangelism and as I'm seeking to, to tell others. Just in pairs, could you just have a look through verses 1 to 6 and tell me, please, who is at work in the work of evangelism? Now, this passage, John Chapman, the Australian evangelist, taught me is the most important passage on evangelism in the Bible. Just in pairs, who's at work in the work of evangelism? If you don't want to talk to the person next to you, just say, look, I don't want to talk to you. It's fine. Okay, off you go. Who's at work in the work of evangelism, verses 1 to 6, 1 to 7? Because we've got to establish where is the power as we're speaking. And then once you've gone through, just mutter it to the person next to you. Great to be telling others about this, so do jot this down. This question, who's at work in the work of evangelism? One more minute, everyone. This is your core passage. Okay. Now, don't leave the fat Anglican stranded at the front here. Who's at work in the work of evangelism? What have we got? Anyone give me a verse? Who does what? Jesus is at work. Which verse is, 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 is central for, for, for him, for us? Which verses? Just give me a verse, guys. Verse 5. So what do we do? Jesus. Hardest bit of name dropping to do in the, uh, 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 in the world, isn't it? But we're to get him out there. There's a pain line as we do that. So on evangelism, it's three things. It's who we are, 
And as in who we are, we're made in God's image, we are celebrating people. So ask questions, rejoice in people, everything in life. It's great, it's amazing. John Chapman told me that. There was nothing he wasn't interested in because it's a great world. So who are we? We celebrate people. What do we do? We serve because we follow the one who came to serve. He, did not, uh, he gave himself as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served but to serve. So who are we? We're made in God's image. We celebrate people. Secondly, what do we do? We serve. We're to be servants. But thirdly, what do we say? What's the third thing we say? We talk about Jesus. And again, the way we do this is we ask questions about everything in life, but we ask people questions that cross a pain line. So again, for the gay couple, are you, are you an atheist or a theist? Another, uh, 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 there's a woman on my street. They've just gone on a three-month honeymoon, this, this couple. She's got a very bad back injury. And I'm just going to say to her, I'm going to say, Lindsay, what happens if you never get better from the back? What happens if it never recovers? That's my next question for her. So as you get to know people, you say, what's the next question to ask? So amidst rejoicing in them, I'm crossing the pain line. I'm going to say, you know, where... What, and and, and, I, and I, now I might receive hostility, I might receive hunger, but there are loads of people in my church. I'm sure that it's true here too. They're amazing. They just, I think of Sheila Toogood. She lives in constant pain. She's she's in a wheelchair. She rejoices in Christ. It's because Christian joy is internal. Uh, happiness is external. So who are we? We celebrate. What do we do? We serve. What do we say? We cross the pain line to say things. But we are preaching Christ. We're talking of Jesus. He's the most amazing man. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. As he was being murdered, he cried out for his killers, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And as we speak of him, just write this down, it's not in the Bible, but it's helpful, the best spontaneity is rehearsed. The best spontaneity is rehearsed. There are three levels of speaking. Level one, self-focused. Do you remember the first time you stood up to speak, you wanted to die? You just, you do the flooding. Level two is message focus. Have I got the Bible right? The third level is audience focus. You forget about yourself. You can give yourself because you're on top of the material. And that takes practice. So we practice it with others. We do that. And then the next, the next question on preaching Christ is this. This is what I'm trying to get people to, 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 to be doing at All Souls. Is, is would you like to look at the Bible with me? Would you like to have a look? Now what can they say to that? Yes or no? So there's a guy called Yomi on my street, and uh, we've been going to the swings for two years. And the other day I said to him, he'd had a bit of a heart flutter, and I said to him, I said, I said, mate, do you want to have a look at the Bible? And he said, no. So that's okay. I've, get, I've asked him. We're going on being friends. But it was really disappointing. <laughs> I said, do you want to have a look? Why don't we meet up? No. Okay. So... So we preach Christ. We're, we're looking to speak of Jesus. But what else happens? Can we have a look down? Who else is at work as we speak of Jesus? Give me a verse. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So where does it say, Let there be light? Where's that from? Let light shine out of darkness. It's in John. But John is writing with what passage in front of him genesis 1 so the god who said let there be light who made the world now this is amazing again i'm not going to do evangelism unless i get this the god who said let there be light took the same power that made the world and the wor- and he created the world with that power he takes the same power he recreates my heart and he gets me to see do we see the end of the verse as we look down, he gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, he gets us to see that Jesus is God. And the word here to write down is miracle. 
It is a miracle that we are here. It is a miracle that we believe. So God takes the power that made the world and he opens my blind eyes. So we preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. So as I, that's the methodology for evangelism. And as I, as I speak to people, I'm going, I'm pathetically trying to speak of Jesus. But God is taking the power and opening blind eyes. So, by the way, that means if you meet someone from a Christian home and you say, why are you a Christian? And they go, oh, it's really boring. I've just came from a Christian home. Do you know what you have to do to them pastorally? Very gently take them outside into the car park and headbutt them. The reason you're Christian is God opened your blind eyes. Look, you know this. Think of relations and loved ones and people who've been in Christian circles with you. I think of my, I'm playing golf tomorrow with my brother-in-law in a golf competition. I haven't really played much, so I think it's going to be hopeless. But, I mean, my wife and her parents, do you know, they're lovely Christians. And this guy is totally blind, totally atheist. And he's grown up in the most glorious Christian home. We need a miracle. Please pray for him. We need a miracle. So we preach Christ, but God opens blind eyes. And he's done this for you. The reason you're sitting here is that God opened your blind eyes. And are you thankful for that? Each stage you go, Lord, the the reason I'm Christian is you've done this, and I was utterly blind. Secondly, non-Christians are hardened, but they are blinded by the devil. Who's blinding them? Do you see verse 4? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we need to have mercy on them. On my street, we need to be gentle. The devil's blinded them. Oh, yeah, they're culpable for their hardness. Fools. But they're also blinded. So, three things as I'm speaking to evangelism. Three doctrines that I'm in it, and I'm just not going to jump off and do it. Number one, God is sovereign. So I'm seeing a non-Christian later today at 1.30, as I see Jack. Okay, so God is sovereign. He's put us together in our lives. That's the first thing. Secondly, power. As I speak of Jesus, the power that made the world will be at work. Thirdly, grace. If Jack gives me the proverbial V sign, I'm going fine. I'm secure. The Lord Jesus died for me. And those three things hold me as I jump off into evangelism. And it means that your next door neighbor, your next door neighbor has been put there by God. And I'm saying that 70% of people in London don't really know the names of their next door neighbor. So please learn your next door neighbor's names. And what's amazing is, at our lunchtime service a while back at All Souls on a Thursday, two Christians came. They'd been sitting opposite each other for 18 months. 18 months! And they went, are you a Christian? Ah, how wonderful. They'd said nothing. Nothing. I mean, that's just desperate. The easiest ask of the year is carol services. Get that in your diary. Culturally, we're still allowed to say to people, here's what you say to people, do you celebrate Christmas? Come and do it with me. And all of us should have that in our diaries. My street, we have a, we, every, every year on the street, we invite the whole street to, a, to, a, to, to, to drinks and a, to a carol service, then mince pie and mild wine. And gradually, momentum is building. People are coming along. If they say no, there's relationships. Some just come for the mild wine and mince pies. But it just gets it out there. Get the carol service in your diary, near work, near home, and have it in there. It's got to be in the DNA. Okay, just uh, getting those three in place, just as we head on. Turn to Romans 1, please, just to get our motivation in place for, for, for this. Romans 1, page 1128, 1129. 
because it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Brothers, I'm not going to sit here and just, just sit here and try and whip you into doing evangelism. I'm going to say, what does the Bible say? So, so let's do this. Okay, four reasons for doing evangelism in Romans 1 as we look down. First of all, grace. So what, what should motivate me as we look down Romans 1 and have a look? You see verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So do you remember Paul? Do you remember Luther? Luther says in 1505, he said, I hated God. I hated God because he demanded righteousness from me and all I saw in my heart was wickedness. He said, I long for a merciful God. And then Luther has his tower experience when he's reading Augustine on Romans and he suddenly goes, God doesn't just demand a righteousness from me. He gives me the righteousness of Christ. So as he looks at me, he doesn't just send his son to die for me. He actually clothes me in the righteousness of Christ. So Gresham Machen, the Westminster theologian, as he was dying, cried out, I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. Now, brothers, do you realize that? You're not just forgiven. You also get given the righteous life of Jesus. So as God looks at you, this is incredible. He looks at you and he looks at you independent of your performance. He evaluates you according to Christ's performance. That's the heart of the gospel. How can God be right and make me right when I'm wrong? So as a one-to-one question, here's the question I ask people. Do jot it down. I ask people this. How does God feel about you today? I say, I want you to look back at the last week, and I want to ask you, how does God feel about you? Look back at your last week. How does God feel about you? And can I say... Your one-word answer, if you've written down disappointed, I don't think you're converted. I mean it. The word that you must have written down is this, delighted. God is delighted with you because he's delighted with Jesus. And amazingly, oh, today, and I think of the depravity in my heart. I just think of the, the sinful idiot I am. But today, God looks at me, and as he sees me, he sees Christ. How does God feel about me? Rico, God's delighted with you. Why? Because he's delighted with Jesus and you relate to him through Christ's performance, not your own. So the essence of the gospel, this is what Luther discovered, is not a righteousness we offer to God, which is all what people think. I'm a good person. No, no, no. The essence of the gospel is a righteousness we receive from God. Now, here's my question. Is that true and wonderful? If that is not true and wonderful to you, you're in real trouble. Oh, the relief of it. Oh, look, I I don't know where you were on this, but my dad worked in tobacco in Africa, so we got sent over here to a boarding school when we were eight, my brother and I. I'm eight years old. I arrived at this boarding school with dyslexia, and I'm taught three things very quickly. Number one, Tice, you are not good enough. You're not good enough, Tice. Secondly, prove yourself. And thirdly, it's a dangerous world, and I knew it was a dangerous world because the prefect in my dorm got into bed with the prefect in the next door dorm each night. you're not good enough, prove yourself is a dangerous world. You get up the school and we'll only love you conditionally. It's conditional love that will get you up this school. No no more unconditional love from home. Can you imagine what happened when a guy, Christopher Ash, told me the gospel? Okay, I'm, I'm 16 years old at school. You're not good enough. I know I'm not. That's why Christ died for me. Prove yourself, not to him. I live by his performance, not my own. It's a dangerous world, yes, but he'll take me home. Oh, the gospel. It's a treasure. 
Do you believe that today? It's an absolute treasure. So is it both true and wonderful? When Dad went on business trips, he'd always bring me back an asterisk book. And I tell you what, when I got my asterisk book, he'd bring it back, he'd get it out. When I'd got it, I tell you what, I could have read it on a heap of manure. I had my treasure. I'm not kidding. For the next hour, I'm like, oh! Now, that should be what we're like in all of our lives. You have the gospel. This is your treasure. If you're not feeling this, as if I'm speaking to you, you're thinking, oh, well, okay. Can I tell you what the problem is? You, don't, you can't see your sin. Stop reading the Bible in the morning. Stop looking at the Bible. You don't know your sin. If you, don't, if, you, if, you, if you can see your sin, then this is the most amazing thing, this gift of righteousness. Secondly, number one, the gift of righteousness. It's true and wonderful. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this. But secondly, the second thing that uh, Jesus speaks about again and again, as I've said, is Gehenna. So there are only two Greek words I know. One is kebab, the other is Gehenna. But Gehenna was the stinking public rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. Fires were kept constantly burning there to dispose of rotting material. And Jesus used this word to describe where people would go to pay for their own sin. Now, I want to make this point. There is only one Jesus. There is one Jesus, and he is the one that speaks of hell again and again and again. There is only one, and when people speak of another Jesus, they're not giving me the biblical Jesus. Jesus is the theologian of hell. And so as we uh, uh, just look down into our, our, our Bibles here, let me just give you... But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be uh, uh, subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, this is Matthew 5.22, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 29, the same uh, 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 chapter. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one, one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. With tears, could I ask you to walk through Matthew's gospel and see how often Jesus speaks of it? Now, interestingly, chapter 7, verse, 18, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Now, that road to destruction, John Stott says, is, de- is defined by two things in the culture. Tolerance... Tolerance, I can, I can uh, uh, think as I please. Permissiveness, I can do as I please. And that takes people to hell, the road to destruction. On we go. But small is the gate and wide is the road that leads to, hell, to life, and only a few find it. And then the next verse is this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferociously wolves. What is the mark of the false prophet? Why does Matthew put that there? It's because the pastor who doesn't speak of hell is the false prophet. He says to people, you're fine. You're, on, you're fine. You're a good person. And he, he leaves them on the road to destruction. That is, the, that is the mark of the false teacher in this culture. So, so read through that, and, and we just need more tears. Now, when I was uh, playing rugby at uh, Oxford University and getting my third... Um, it was a fine effort, my third. And when I got my third, I said to my tutor, I said, was I close to a 2-2? He said, no, Rico, it was a very solid third. I always remember that moment. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, the, the Church of England's the only place for me, I thought. But I gave a take one time to a guy in the rugby team called Dave. Uh, and, uh, and to, sorry, a guy called Ed. Uh, uh, Ed in the rugby team. And it was of John 1, verse 29. And I was preaching on, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one night before a game, with Chris and Ben and another guy called Dave in, in this rugby house, all non-Christians, they played my tape. And in the sermon I said, either we pay for sin ourselves in hell, or the Lamb of God pays. 
And as the sermon was being played, Dave, who was captain of the Blues rugby team, got more and more angry. And at the end of it, he said, Rico's not my friend. And they said, don't be ridiculous. You play in the front row together. You room together on tour. You play golf together. He said, oh, no, half an hour ago, I thought he was one of my best friends. He said, but if that's what he believes, the fact he said nothing to me in 18 months means he doesn't care for me. That's what he said. And then the non-Christian Ed rang me up, and he said, Rico, I'm really sorry. I played that tape you gave me to, to, to Ed. To, to, Ed rang me up, and he said, I played the tape to Dave. He's, he's very upset you've not spoken to him. He thinks you need to speak to him. It was a seminal moment for me. He, he said, if you, and then when I saw him, he said, mate, if you cared for me, you'd have spoken to me about these things, if that's what you believe. He said, if you cared, you'd have spoken to me. So, just to say... When it comes to this, okay, there are two ways to falling into debt. The first way that I fall into debt is that Charles gives me £10, I give it back, I've got to give it back to him. But the second way to fall into debt is this, is that Charles gives me £10, he says, pass it on to Tim. And until I pass it on to Tim, I'm in Charles's debt and I'm in Tim's debt. You are in people's debt unless you pass this on. And therefore, we have got to make Jesus an unavoidable issue as Jews for Jesus say. Would you make that your prayer? I'm going to make Jesus an unavoidable issue to the people around me. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to love them. I'm going to celebrate them. I'm going to serve them. But I'm going to cross the pain line and ask the question, whichever is appropriate for them. But I'm going to make him, by God's grace, an unavoidable issue. Otherwise, here is the issue. We care more about what they think of us now than of what Christ will think of them on Judgment Day. So I remember that I was, I was speaking at one place, in, in, I was doing a tiny little seminar in Singapore, and, and I was speaking about hell, and in the middle of my talk, the pastor got up of the church, and he said, I'm so sorry, he said, you don't understand Singaporean culture. If you did, you'd realize that it is absolutely culturally unacceptable to speak of death and hell. That's what he said in the middle of my talk. And I thought of exactly the right thing to say to him six hours later. Don't you always do that? Six hours later, I thought what I should say to him. What I should have said to him is this. I'll say on Judgment Day, I'll say to people, I'm so sorry I didn't speak to you, but it was culturally unacceptable. I mean, I, I didn't say anything because it was culturally unacceptable. Hell is meant to be offensive, and we need more tears. We need to weep. At my grandmother's funeral, she died absolutely believing in her own goodness. My brother burst into tears. And I was the only one in church who knew why. And we need to speak. And I remember as my grandmother died, I didn't speak to her for fear of my family. I was, uh, so I loved myself more than her. So on evangelism, it's, this is the question. Do you believe this and do you love people? And therefore, will you tell them? Do you believe it? Do you love people? Will you tell them? We need more tears. Now, why is it we won't speak? You see, so, so Paul, just on that one, being in debt, just have a look down, Romans 1, verse 14. I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. He says, I'm in their debt to Greeks and non-Greeks. We're in debt. We owe it. We hate being in debt. Well, we're in their debt. Thirdly, why won't we speak? Now, why won't we do it? Now, on this little book, this is by far the most reaction that I've had on this Honest Evangelism book. Why don't we do it? Can we have a look, verse 25? This is why we don't speak, men. Have a look down, verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. 
So I'm meant to live for God's glory. So what, what am I to be doing in my life? Living for the glory of God. That is what I'm, I'm called to do. So, so, you know, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. But what happens is the reason we don't speak is because there are shadow glories that are good things that have become God things that dominate my life. So can I ask you, what are your nightmares? What are your daydreams? They're very important. Your nightmares and daydreams are very important because that's why you're not speaking. There are other things you're fixated on. I remember uh, 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 10 days before the varsity match when I was at Oxford, I remember standing in college chapel at Theological College and thinking, I don't care about God, I don't care about the gospel, I don't care about my friends, I don't care about my family, I just want to get a blue, and once I've got a, got a blue, I'll care about all those things again. And I didn't realize, actually, I didn't realize, actually, that was idolatry. I was standing on the steps of All Souls, and I'm standing there, and a woman comes out of church on a a Sunday morning, and she says to me, tell my daughter, tell my daughter to apply for Oxford University. And I'm looking at her, and she says, tell her to do that. At that point, the daughter comes out, and the daughter and I exchange a glance, which is like, your mum's a nutter. So we just had that moment of intimacy, (laughs) your mum's a nutter. And and, and she said, look, I want to go to UCL. And the mum says, shut up, shut up. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, "What what had that woman been praying about for the previous hour and a half in church? What had her prayer been? Now, because we're idolaters, what happens is we expect God to become a divine waiter to give us our daydreams, and actually, when he doesn't, we get furious with him. But evangelism is living for his glory. The great question is not what's God's plan for my life. That's idolatrous. The question is what's God's plan for his world, which is that other people come to know him. That's the plan. So stop living for good things that have become God things. Examine your daydreams. Our hearts get kidnapped. And then we just come and touch base with God on a Sunday. A couple more things as we go. Francis Schaeffer, by the way, he said, in the future, people will live for personal peace and affluence. Affluence, I've got to have my money. Personal peace, leave me alone. And so even in our churches, physical health is more important than spiritual health. Physical appearance, more important than spiritual character. Approval of people, more than thankfulness to God. Status and wealth, more important than identity in Christ. So what are your shadow glories? That's why you're not speaking. You've got to do some cardiology on your own heart. And as I say this, please pray that I'll be authentic and do it myself as I tell you that. So, so mind the idols. Lastly, lastly, godliness. So we've had four Gs, grace, Gehenna, glory. The fourth one is godliness. John Chapman said this, you can't be godly, you can't be godly and not be concerned for the lost. God was so concerned for the lost that he sent his son to die. Now, in our churches, what we've done, the way we've stopped doing evangelism is this. We have concocted in our heads an understanding of godliness that actually separates godliness from evangelism. So we think it's perfectly possible to be godly and yet never speak to people. And the way we we defend ourselves is this. We say this. My faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life. I wouldn't dream of imposing it on anyone else. That's how we stop speaking, and we become functional universalists. But at the heart, at the heart of being godly is to be like God, exhibit a Jesus, for God so loved the world he sent his son to die. So again, as we look down, what makes God angry? What makes him most angry? Have a look, Romans 1.18. 
I'm, uh, as we look, wrote, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. What makes him most angry? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's when people say, I don't need Jesus, I'll keep him at arm's length. There's nothing that makes him more angry. Christ has come to die, and people say, I don't need it. And Christians say, I won't speak about it. That's what makes him most angry. It's not murder. It's not adultery. Oh, those things are serious and will be judged. But the heart of sin is to not believe in Jesus. Oh, brothers, which one of those four is, the, is for you, the one you've got to get back into your head? Grace, Gehenna, hell, glory, what's stopping you speaking, your heart's living for other things, that's why you're apathetic, or godliness. You've forgotten that the heart of godliness is telling others. Let's pray. Well, just as we pray now, let's bring one person to mind who we need to speak to. And let's be mindful of those three things, that we celebrate them. Who are we made in God's image? We ask them questions, thrilled to know them. Secondly, we serve them. How can, how can we be a servant to them? How can we help them? Normally in London, that's by giving time. And thirdly, what's the pain line we have to cross? Is there someone we just need to ask this question? Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Oh, Father, please, be at work, we pray. Lord, we just pray for this individual. Oh, Lord, please, open their eyes. Father, give us the courage to speak. And Lord, please, we pray as you made us hungry, make them hungry. Lord, if there's hostility, help us to receive that and to to know where our identity is. Thank you for putting them next to us in our lives, your sovereign. Oh, Lord, please give us the courage to speak. Amen. Rico, on behalf of all of us, so many thanks for coming and sharing your heart and opening up God's word on this vital topic this morning. Um, Why don't we show our appreciation for Rico? We've got about 10 minutes or so, Um, and in a moment, uh, let's turn in our groups to just reflect on all we've heard and perhaps to think of um, some actions that we personally need to take, uh, some boundaries, pain thresholds we might need to cross. Um, And just to say before we do that, as some of you will have to slip away, this is the heart. This this morning is so exciting uh, for us here because this is the heart of of Burning Man. We we need a city. We need um, this city this nation, to be filled with Ricos. I mean, hands up who would want to be, you know, just tapped into that passion that Rico carries. That's, that's the vision. This city needs more Ricos, more men who burn with the fire of the gospel. And uh, thank you for coming today. But the question uh, for me, from me, is will you be here again in two weeks when we gather, when we have Christopher Ash, who preached that message when Rico came to faith? He's coming to begin our series in 2 Timothy. Will you be here? Will you join us as we seek to persevere and walk it out uh, so that we remain fired up and those who will cross the threshold to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends? We'd love to see you here. Um, Many thanks for being here this morning. Let's turn in our groups now, reflect on what we've heard for a few minutes, and then pray for each other. We need God's strength, God's power to do this.